three eggs were described in uh, <coughs> um Pardon me. Crosby. So <laughs> Spoiler alert. This podcast will be talking about the Duncan Egg novella The Mystery Night and we'll be talking about it in the context of all published A Song of Ice and Fire stories. So, if you don't want to be spoiled about anything, get caught up and we'll be here waiting. Thanks and we hope you enjoy. Dedicated to George R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's episode, what, 287 of the podcast. Wow, I'm getting closer and closer to 300. Yay. Uh, this week, we are looking at the Duncan Egg novella from A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, entitled The Mystery Night. My name is Matt Murdock, and I am from PodcastWinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find contact links, social media links, all that good stuff, and podcast app links as well. And I would love it if you would take the time to leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you use if you haven't, because that will enter you into a contest. The contest is for one of two copies of the Season 6 Game of Thrones official soundtrack. And that official soundtrack has lots of good songs by Ramin Javadi on it that accompanied Season 6 of the show. And I will give it to you in the format of your choice, MP3 or CD, whatever kind of format you prefer these days. Two copies. So you have... Uh, twice as good a chance of winning as if there was only going to be one copy given away. I do have over 300 entries in so far right now worldwide, and everybody who has left a review before is included in the contest. So you don't have to leave a new review uh, to be included in the contest. Just as long as you have written a review anytime in the history of this podcast, then you are included. But if you haven't written a review... Well, get on it, because you only have until October 4th, 2016 to do so in order to be part of this contest. That's enough about that. Time to bring on our panelists. We have two of the Red Widows returning this week. Unfortunately, Stephanie couldn't be with us. We want to give a quick shout out to her. She had something else going on, I guess, and she couldn't make it this week. But we have returning, of course, the spreadsheet Red Widow, and that would be Kelly. Welcome back. And I was Stephanie, I will giggle double for you, my love, and uh, hopefully <laughs> I have enough spreadsheet. I do have a spreadsheet this time, you guys. I know. That's yeah. shocking. <laughs> but uh, I've got my checky blanket, and I'm uh, I'm ready to talk about uh, the final book we have. There's nothing like talking about A Song of Ice and Fire with a checky blanket. That is for sure. Uh, somebody who's always fact-checky. Oh, bad, Matt. Uh, with me is, uh, of course, our returning panelist who's been with me all year long with the Game of Thrones read and such. And welcome back, Susan. How are you? I'm fine, Matt, and uh, also eager to talk about the mystery night. So besides the checky blanket, do we all have our boots as well? <laughs> Definitely need boots. Definitely need em boots. Emptied them out. Yes, I will un empty all of my boots out on this on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, why don't we first just start with a, a real quick summary? It's Dunk and Egg make their way north towards Winterfell, but stop in the Riverlands to uh, attend a wedding and attorney, which ends up thrusting them into the birth 
of a new Blackfire Rebellion. That's kind of the gist of it. Uh, before we get started with any kind of points or anything, we'll do the same thing we did last time. Susan, I'm going to turn to you first this time and ask you, um, how did you like this story in terms of compared to the other ones or uh, just in terms of a work on its own? Did you find this one better or worse than The Sworn Sword? Um, you know, I like all of them. I don't particularly have a favorite between the three. Uh, frankly, uh, I've heard a lot of people tell me that they think this one is the weakest um, of the three. I, in my original reading, probably was least favored of the Sworn Sword. Uh, just the style of it was not particularly my type, but it's grown on me. So I really like them all. Right on. Uh, Kelly, is it better? Is it just different? Is it uh, worse? What do you think? I definitely think it's different. I've actually heard that the um, the Sworn Sword is the least favorite, I think, because of that slower pace and everything. But for me, I think this one was um, way more in line with the series, the main series. It felt so much more like a Song of Ice and Fire series than the first two, which kind of had a very different feel to them, I thought, than, than the main series. And it could have been just that this one was written... Um, so close to the other ones like this one was published in 2010 mm. which uh, was between Feast for Crows and Dance which closer to Dance which came out in 11 so it's very likely that this is just George was just in the zone you know <laughs> when he was writing this one so it just had that very, very familiar feel which in some ways I you know made me really um fond of it but in other ways it didn't feel as much as a Dunkin' Egg story you know the climax wasn't really as exciting um, it was more like you just kind of are revealing things a little bit more abruptly it felt like um, it was just a, so I thought like the, the Hedge Knight was like exciting and you were meeting our heroes and experiencing like this great trial of seven and you know we have princes and lords in that one but the sworn sword was like emotionally compelling and we had these expectations about these characters and george like masterfully manipulates us to like flip those you know <laughs> this one was you know it had more action and intrigue definitely um and plot twists and secret identities. And a lot of those things are just a lot more familiar with the main series, I thought. So I liked it, but I think it wasn't as much of a Dunkin' Egg novella as it was a Song of Ice and Fire, like, novella, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting comparison, too. And I like both of your opinions. I personally, just because of the amount of Blood Raven in it and the intrigue in it, I actually really like this story. And maybe because it is more like the rest of the Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, one aspect that it's more like the Song of Ice and Fire series is the uh, food descriptions that I could have done without, although they weren't <laughs> too long. It w wasn't like pages and pages of it like you have in some of those later books. But uh, it I did. Have you, did you read it in the, the paperback one, um, The Night of the Seven Kingdoms? Uh, I did not read it in the paperback form. I just have the Kindle <laughs> Cloud Reader version. It was a full page in the Knights of the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> ah, okay. Now, they are attending a feast. There hadn't been a proper feast in the other Dunkin' Fair. Egg novellas, so. Uh, Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess he had to, he has to, he has to put that little trademark into all of his books as well. And why don't we just, uh, kind of, I don't really, again, this isn't a recap podcast. We're really just going to talk about the stuff that hits us and why and, and, and that kind of thing. But 
there is something that I noticed that I just kind of wanted to say right off the bat. And it's like two dunk stories in a row here for me in the last couple of weeks where the first side is of some dead corpse or some corpse head and uh, crows having eaten off of it. George is just, he's just really mean, man. He, he just sets the tone of, of something bad's going to happen right off the bat. Yeah, they start with, like, isn't he starting, like, with the Hedge Knight? Oh, it's been a while since I read it, but isn't he burying Sir Arlen? Yes. yes. So it's like, yeah. death, death, death is how we start all these. <laughs> a little more we call them we call them the lighter, fluffier uh, pieces <laughs> of the Song of Ice and Fire, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, nice and light and fluffy, a, a head sitting on a, on a pike at the top of the town. Well, we never met any of those characters, so it's easier. Yeah. <laughs> Not any easier for me to think of crows eating their flesh off of them. Yeah, oh, I'd rather course. I'd rather them I'd rather them be dissolved in the ground where I can't see them. So, <laughs> do you want to give a quick overview of the different versions of this, like we did for the uh, sworn sword? I think that's a good idea, Susan. What do you got for us? Uh, well, um, as Kelly said, this came out in 2010, and it was originally in a, um, a compilation of short stories called The Warriors, um, which Martin and Garden, Gardner Dozier, Dozius, a uh, friend of his that he uh, edits uh, some of this stuff with, uh, did this one. And um, so when it came out, it also came out in a audio format, which is the one I have of the original. And that one is read by a Patrick Lawler, uh, never heard of him besides this. Uh, and when um, I had mentioned last time that the um, the audio version of the Sworn Sword starts out with a, an overview of kind of the history of uh, uh, the Seven Kingdoms, this one doesn't just go straight into the story. Um, and then in terms of a um, uh, graphic novel. Uh, they never made one for this like they did for the Hedge Knight and the Sworn Sword, which is really too bad because they're they're lovely, the, the two of those that came out. And then, uh, of course, it came out just this past year, uh, compiled with the other two stories in the Knight of Seven Kingdoms. And in the audio version of that, we have it read by the actor Harry Lloyd, who played uh, Viserys on uh, the television series. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, by the way, I just looked up Patrick Lawler. He has recorded over 300 audiobooks in just about every genre. Wow. He has been an Audi Award finalist several times and has received several Audiophile Earphones Awards. He has won hmm. Publishers Weekly Listen Up Award, numerous Library Journal, and Kirkus Starred Audio Reviews, multiple editor picks, blah, blah, blah. Um, I he's, did not save the audiobook, man. Did you listen? Have you listened to it? I have not. Oh, so have you read? Have you listened to any of the audiobooks for the Dunk? Not for Dunkin' Egg, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first one was the worst, where one of the readers would always say "sire." Oh, so bad. Then he does it a little bit. For Patrick Lawler does it a little bit on this one. He just pronounces it "sire." Oh. <laughs> and he does it in his little kid Dunk or egg voice and it's just so grating. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely excited that uh, it has been re-recorded. <laughs> I want to hear that one. 
So evidently he did not get nominated for an audiophile award uh, for this particular reading. (laughs) Well, it's just a weird word, too. It is spelled S-E-R, so I understood it. It It's just like, that doesn't... That doesn't work for me. I was not feeling it. I don't think maybe he read, he's read George's books where you just misspell things, but you still pronounce it normal. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Gave him the benefit of the doubt since this was a one-off for him, but it was, oh, it was painful. And if anyone's listened to it and, and you know, felt my pain, I wanted to tell you I was there with you. <laughs> well, he's the one that I originally heard it from, and um, I didn't mind him so much. I did notice that, you know, a few of the words weren't pronounced the way I would have expected them from hearing the main series, and he's no uh, Roy Dotrice, but I do really like Harry Lloyd's uh, interpretation. I think he, he did an excellent job with it. Oh, very cool. Well, I got issues with Roy Dotrice. I mean, Brian, come on. <laughs> well, all of those were also done before the show, so it hadn't really been like established that how you should say it, I guess. I don't know. I give him a little credit there. <laughs> okay. Uh, Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't, I look at that word and I, I think I've seen people even name that before. Um, and I never would have come up with that pronunciation myself, but, uh, that's just me. That's me in my American <laughs> ways. Oh. That's right. Um, <laughs> Well, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> uh, let's get into this story then. Um, let's start with you, Susan. Uh, where would you like to start with here? Uh, the beginning. All right. Um, as you know, they're leaving and they're heading for uh, with with the intention to uh, go to uh, Lord Baron Stark. And if the uh, when George gets around to getting out the next Duncan egg, the the uh, she wolves of Winterfell, as it's been uh, tentatively titled, uh, I have learned a little bit about the fact that this Lord Baron Stark gets killed by uh, the the uh, Iron Men that he's fighting. So I bet that he will be already dead by the time they get there. And there's a number of women that in in uh, Winterfell at that time that are kind of jockeying for power. There's a lot of young children and a number of women. So it should be an interesting situation. Uh, but what I also found interesting as they're leaving Stony Sep, which we know from the main series that Arya stopped there with uh, the Brotherhood and went to the famous Peach there where uh, Robert Baratheon had hit out when the, when the battle happened there. So, I, you know, it's nice to kind of tie things. One of the things I think that a lot of people enjoy about the Dunkin' Egg series is as it it, it kind of broadens the world and it, there's so many tiebacks to the series. So I thought that was fun. Um, but also, as you're listening to uh, to Dunk recount uh, in, in his mind what this Septon had said, I was caught by one thing uh, when he was talking about Lord, Lord Bloodraven. Uh, I know that we've talked before a little bit about the theory that uh, Melisandre could potentially be a child of Blood Ravens and share a sea stars. And what I was caught by was when he said, a shadow came at his command yes. to strangle Prince Valar's sons in his mother's womb. And even though I doubt that there's anything you know at all to that, I don't think you know Valar's sons were killed by some shadow demon or anything like that. I just was caught by by the idea that uh, Lord Raven could conjure shadow demons as uh, Melisandre does. 
that uh, that struck me as well. I got that. I also just the whole idea of him using a glamour, which it seems that Melisandre, uh, we suspect in the books, has been using. The show has definitely made it seem apparent that she's been using a glamour on herself. Right. Um, and right. Uh, it, uh, you know, there, there's some allusions to that early on in the in the chapter. Um, who could uh, a, a student of the dark arts who could change his face? And my first instinct, just because I've been thinking about Arya so often, was, oh, is he faceless man too? No. no. <laughs> then I realized it was more about a glamour thing. I think is what they were alluding to. And, yeah. and of course, there's allusions to warging as well, which. Um, I think points uh, a great deal towards his ability to get to his position that he gets to by the time Bran finds him. So, right. The first time that they run into this uh, Sir Maynard Plum, his cloak is clasped by uh, a pin that has a large moonstone on it. Mm. So, you know, I know that, you know, we've talked about the glamours often being associated with the use of a jewel. Right. So that, that, you know, I thought that was interesting. So you are among the many readers, and I'll, I'll get to you too, Kelly, on this one, but you are among the many readers who believe that uh, Maynard Plum was, in fact, Blood Raven in, uh, in a glamour? Yeah, I think that there's several hints to it. And um, do you want me to elaborate on, on what I saw about that now or wait till we kind of go through the story a little more uh we can wait till we get to the, go through okay. the story a little more but i would like to hear kelly's opinion do you do you think that uh maynard plum was in fact blood raven in some kind of glamour on a like reread i think yeah like susan said like there's a lot of hints at it and we i feel like you know we've, we brought it up we can go into it a little bit right <laughs> i feel like we'll leave people hanging and i'll forget to come back to some of these i do <laughs> want to say that there is like one uh very clumsily thrown in line that George does add to make it seem like, well, how did Blood Raven know everything that was happening here? And the only blood that was shed was the man who had um, claimed that he was one of his spies. And so they killed him. <laughs> yeah. So it was kind of thrown in and it was very blunt. And it was just kind of like, well, that kind of would explain how he knew everything. And if you didn't catch any of those other hints before, that one was blatantly there for you to accept and move on if you were wondering how Blood Raven knew. So That's true. That was a, there is a very logical explanation for everything if we don't want to believe in the magic. However, <laughs> that I'm would sorry. discount. Kelly, what was it? Who was killed? I was confused. Who was killed? I didn't catch it. Near the end, so it says mm -hmm. uh, a plaus So it's a uh, this is like kind of the plausible excuse for how Blood Raven showed up in time. Um, okay, but it's presented uh, like near the end. Um, the quote is: "The only blood that was shed that day came when a man in service to Lord Virwell began to boast that he had been one of Blood Raven's eyes and would soon be well rewarded." And then he ah. goes on, and, and then somebody slit his throat and says, "You know, drink <laughs> that." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it was a little obtuse for George's taste, so it kind of seemed to, to stick out a little bit as a red herring. Yeah, that did seem a little, uh, well, it, it gives it gives the non-magic believers a, a chance to, it gives them an out. That's what he likes. Sure. He likes to give people an out all the time. But I, I agree, Susan. I, I guess we, we can go ahead and go through with it since we're this far into it. But some of the other things that you felt uh, might make the case for the fact that Blood Raven was, in fact, glamoring as uh, uh, Maynard Plum. Well, I think uh, a lot of it, when they're having that conversation um, around the campfire, when they get together with the, with the uh, 
hedge knights and uh, Plum introduces himself and Egg asks him if he is a, uh, you know, related to the series Plum. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says distantly. And uh, we, the story of Plum is that he was um, the son of Ossifer Plum and this uh, Elena Targaryen right. princess. And uh, the idea that there, there's all those jokes about that with, with uh, Brown Ben Plum later on, and Cersei alludes to the joke too about the fact that Plum died on his wedding night, and then when the child was born, there's these jokes about he must have had a six foot cock because he would have to have been in the grave to impregnate her. Um, so there's the idea that uh, spoken or not spoken so much that he could have been um, Aegon, the unworthy son, this uh, one that uh, Plum is saying that he was you know, potentially a distant relation to. Mm. And then later at the dinner table when they're talking, um, you know, somebody says, uh, it, may, it may have been Dunk, I think, that uh, if all the rumors about uh, Aegon's, uh, Aegon were true, then, you know, we'd all be his sons. And, uh, and he, pipes up who says we're not you know so i think there's you know those things are george kind of giving us a nod and a wink that you know that's who this guy is um and then of course he he shows up so conveniently at the right times to to save dunk and there's the fact that when they're in his his tent he uh he thinks that he he looks odd which you know the way it's described makes it sound like his He's able to see there's something off with his glamour a little bit that he's able to right. see that that his appearance is not what it should be. One of my favorite tie lines, if I could just say, one of my favorite tie lines is the fact that both Maynard Plum and Blood Raven use the phrase "nest of adders." Mm-hmm. That's pretty overt, I thought. That was yeah. fairly overt, I thought as well. <laughs> yeah, I can catch I that one. Good. Um, it just reminds me of Black Adder. I don't know if anyone's ever watched that show, so that, <laughs> it stood out to me for that reason. There's no other reason I would notice that other than <laughs> Rowan Atkinson is amazing. <laughs> Heard good things about it, but I've never seen it. Highly recommended. Okay. Um, there was uh, oh, so the the first time we see um, Maynard is they are in a ring of weirwood stumps, which mm-hmm. we know Blood Raven mm-hmm. is very fond of. Um, mm-hmm. Not sure if he is at this point in time. It's kind of hard to, to gauge some of this stuff. and True. But it, it does seem to um, allude to, like, thematically, he is associated with those. So it could have just been a George clue yeah. at us. Because there was no other um, significance to those, I thought, except for maybe that the Whitehall, Whitehall mm-hmm. had been – they said something about the, the rafters were all weirwood um, right. beams. So maybe those trees had been just recently cut down for Whitehall well, and – Blood Raven's family, uh, their uh, their sigil of their their house, Raven Tree Hall, is a um, you know big old weirwood. Mm. Yes, yeah, the, the petrified one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I, when I heard that, I was wondering. Hmm, I wonder what Blood Raven thinks about that. You know, cutting down the weirwood trees. Yeah, it might be looked at as kind of a taboo to do that. Yeah. Let's see, I think there was a couple others, just like his defense of. Um, Blood Raven, when uh, Sir Kyle is kind of going off about how you know the throne could take a hint from 
how Stark is handling this. Bloodraven does nothing. He's the hand. What is he? He should take a hint from these guys who are actually doing action. And Maynard just kind of shrugs and says, explains basically Bloodraven's whole like uh, strategy. It, it doesn't seem to bat an eye that he's like. And this was actually kind of um, important for later because what he describes is that uh, the quote is, his eye is fixed on Tyrosh, where Bittersteel sits in exile, plotting with the sons of Damon Baratheon. Damon Blackfire, so he keeps the king's ships close at hand, lest they attempt to cross. So it's, at first, I just read that as a "haha, Blood Ravens defending Blood Raven," <laughs> but then as like the mm-hmm. the Blackfire plot unfolded a little bit, I was like, "Oh, that's actually relevant." <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just say there's a bunch of like little clues and stuff. But what do you guys think? Do you, you know, like, was it well done? Was it over? Was it? like satisfying enough that you believe it yeah i think in so many of these cases you know similar to uh you know uh never saying that dunk is is not a knight or you know some of the things that we get in the main series i think you know george never overtly comes out and declares you know what is what but i think that there is significant enough evidence that it just makes sense yeah to me, there there is uh, so much in here. It's kind of like looking at an R plus L equals J. It almost it feels like an accepted truth, even if it's not spoken, um, because there's so much evidence in it, um, and and because it's so condensed, perhaps also um, for me. Yeah, the most like mm-hmm. compelling part is I think that Maynard just disappears. At the end, like he just, you know, he vanished off and they, they have no explanation for it. I'm like, that's a, you know, just in terms of like a, for a writer, that seems like such a dissatisfying end for a character you've been writing, unless it's supposed to stand out right. and, you know, call to attention that he disappeared and then who appeared. <laughs> so that was pretty compelling mm-hmm. for me for just in terms of like a writing attempt at, at dropping hints like that. So we, we all agree this, I think. I don't know, Susan, you said that he's usually not so overt about his um, like plot well, twists like that. Yeah, he, there were like two others here, right, that were just kind of like spelled out. Uh, what, what I meant is um, he, he may have a lot of clues. I think he just he, – what he doesn't do is he doesn't just say it. You know, he doesn't make the declaration that this is what this is. You know, yeah. He leaves it for the readers to come to their own conclusions. But there's so much of it that I think it, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to, to argue that that's what it is. I, have, I just felt like there were like two other levels of like plot twists that were like super spelled out and then slightly suggestedly spelled out in this book. So it was kind of this, this one being like this third kind of secretive one that he didn't spell out almost was a little bit even more subtrue, you know, subtle in that way. Like the, um, uh, John the Fiddler being Damon and then the dwarves stealing the eggs were the other two that were kind of spelled out, you know, or that mm-hmm. either directly revealed or kind of suggested without being spelt out. And so yeah. those two being spelt out so um, overtly kind of made the blood raven secretive thing actually feel a little bit more subtle to me mm-hmm. in comparison. It was harder to catch. Yeah. I, I would say that um, John the Fiddler being uh, Damon Targaryen is conclusive at the end there. I mean, they're oh, arresting sure. him and everything. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, that, that's one that is really kind of, you know, declared as, you know, that's what this is. Yeah, just comparing those three, like, mm-hmm. identity, I, you know, revelations, basically, as in terms of how overt they were, yeah. kind of made that one seem more subtle. Well, speaking yeah. of overt and uh, John the Fiddler, I mean, everybody got the same sense of what John the Fiddler was actually like on, on the tower when he was talking to Dunk, right? 
gosh. Okay. And that was, <laughs> that's, that okay. seemed, that seemed a little bit overt to me as well. Um, much more overt than the way George typically layers that kind of stuff in. Yes. And, you know, and through this, as, uh, Dunk is thinking back on both Tansel Too Tall and on, um, uh, oh gosh, what's her name now from, uh, Sworn Sword. Yeah. Thinking about both of these women, uh, periodically or at the same time through this made me wonder, are we going to, you know, as the series progresses, are we going to have him looking back on each of the women that he meets, you know, as he goes along on his journey? And then, uh, will he ever look back on, uh, <laughs> on this guy on Damon? Yeah, there was no and other. He made a pass at me too. There was no other love interest in this book. You know, maybe he'll look back on this one. The other thing that I think about as far as Tansel was the fact that I, I don't know why we didn't talk about it last time, or maybe one of you guys said it and I missed it, but I, I didn't realize that Dunk's shield had been broken. Oh yeah. It smashed. wasn't clear in, until this, the beginning of this one, I, th- I don't think I realized that it had been like irreparably damaged. Yeah, uh, that was and, my first note on this. Was that? Oh, yeah, because I, I'm sitting there thinking, well, there you go. There's the metaphor right there. He's never going to find Tenzel. Yeah, but you know what? Doesn't hmm. um he must get it redone? Right. Because well, he said he was yeah. going to get this one repainted at some point, but um, yeah, right. It, yeah, the long inch of uh, the fight with long inch. The fog- fight with long inch up. evidently smashed it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, although, in tying in with the fight with the long inch with this book, did anyone catch like Egg has the exact same line um, in both books? And when he when uh, Dunk is fighting, Egg yells at him, "Get him, sir! Get him! He's right there!" <laughs> and he says the same thing when he's in the water fighting Long Inch. Yeah, he's- he he was doing that as attorney too. I think that's that's you know when when he's watching a fight, that's his kind of standard thing. He was, you know, because when he was, they were watching the jousters the first day and so forth. He would, he would do that at various matches. Yeah. Well, you know, he's 11, right? right I mean, what yeah. kind of a vocabulary is he going to have? Fair. It's Especially just, at a sporting match. Where, yeah. you know. Directly redundant. It was pretty, yeah. pretty cute. It was, I guess we could be um, more polite and say it was character consistency. Ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He definitely wants to, uh, you know, who the person that he is uh, rooting for, he definitely wants to give him as much help as he can. He's right there, you know, in case they can't see <laughs> if their vision's obscured. <laughs> Very good. Uh, other ties to to the Song of Ice and Fire series really quick. Now, let me see if I got this right. Is there is Black Tom Heddle, is he related to Masha in any way? Is that why the the story of the end becomes even that bigger of a deal in Feast? I was wondering about that. I don't know. I, and I haven't, you know, I, I didn't try to research that or anything. Uh, I don't know if there's any information about that, but it's the only other time that I can recall hearing that name. And you would wonder if maybe because of the fact that they got kind of dis, you know, the name got kind of dishonored here. Uh, it sounds like he kind of married up a little bit in marrying uh, Butterwell's daughter. So maybe because of this, their family has, kind of gone down a little bit in the world to where they would be you know, in keeps rather than of the, you know, land, small landed gentry type. Yeah. I was wondering that. What, what do you think, Kel? As you were speaking, I did look up the Heddle family and they do, he is um, listed as allegiant. You know, his allegiance is to them, the, the house Heddle, which is a house, a noble house of landed knights from the Riverlands. So um, it could be that they're all just related 
and they've just kind of slowly expanded in the Riverlands. Okay. He's moved around because yeah, the inn at the crossroads is is not too far yeah. from uh, where this white halls was <laughs> or what white walls was. <laughs> okay, I I wasn't sure of the geography. Yes. I know that one was on. Yeah. They they started off on one side of the lake, and I guess they ferried across to the other, right? Mm-hmm. So they were closer yeah, was, to the mm-hmm. twins, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, than Heron Hall. Yeah, it was very confusing because I wasn't sure why they needed a ferry to get to it. I was like, is it on an island? Is there a river? I, but they, it's, yeah, it confused me, but I just kind of accepted it eventually. I was like, all right, they need to, for whatever reason, they took a ferry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds like, White Wall sounds like it would have been beautiful. I know. I did mourn the Blood Raven's threat of how he was going to destroy it. Well, he did. He, he, he did. took it apart and they ended up, what did he say he was going to do? Salt the land so that nobody could plant flowers yeah. there like they had at the Red Field? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hadn't done it as of the book ending, but he did promise, so hmm. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of it since then in the other series, so it doesn't seem yeah, promising. It doesn't that seem it's like it's there anymore, that's for sure. No. It's just a patch <laughs> of land now. Um, yeah. I thought I'd heard that somewhere that it had. But don't know for sure. Okay. Very good. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, other ties to A Song of Ice and Fire story. I mean, am am I crazy in thinking? Because I know that Walder Frey is pretty old. He's almost as old as, as Maester Eamon was, right? <laughs> so is this oh, yeah. little boy, this little boy who's so wretched and looking and acting and looking, this is Walder, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't crazy. Uh, very good. I was so pleased with how, like, demonized <laughs> George made him. <laughs> yeah, as a child. That's perfect. <laughs> I had no doubt after, like, the second or third time they talked about how horrid this child was that I was like, oh, this has got to be him. <laughs> you know, one thing I found interesting was the description of his father. I mean, he sounded kind of elegant and, um, you know, fairly attractive. So, um <laughs> Maybe it was uh, his mother where he the weasel uh, look came in from. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, he's described as you know a, a, a slim, attractive man. Uh, you know, there's nothing, and then the son is described with the you know the weak chin and all this. So uh, there there isn't anything negative in the description of the the parent. Right. Yeah. And so. Yeah, uh, and of course, all of the phrase that we know in the main series, well, they're all descendants of Walter, direct descendants of Walter, so... Mm-hmm. Um, director, somewhat direct descendants of Walter, I guess. He's, he's had how many kids? So many. Oh my gosh, so many. Uh, oh, I'm actually on the page. He has 22 true-born sons and seven true-born daughters. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been busy. Yeah, he's been busy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, did you guys have any thoughts on the egg that we saw, and the the, the very last minute that its its disappearance was explained? <laughs> yeah. Thoughts on it in terms of like you know is it one of the ones that we've seen later or something like that? Yeah, is there that were three kind of three eggs. At? Three eggs were described. It, I've um, um, I've looked at that. I didn't look at it this time, but I've looked at it in the past. In fact, I think we discussed it some in in uh, one of the uh, conversations that I had in in one of our readings, um, Matt, and it doesn't seem to be because this egg is red primarily. It has the gold flecks and the black whorls, but that doesn't match up with Danny's black egg. So, um, Correct. Yeah. You know. What about egg's egg? 
white and green swirls. Yeah, these are all listed as whereabouts unknown. Okay. So they are all separate. And Eamon's egg that he describes um, that exists, not that he doesn't describe the colors of it, but also is unknown. So, but he did also say that there are a bunch of eggs at Dragonstone. So any of the number of these could have occurred or appeared. Right. Yeah, but now we know that maybe Blood Raven has one. Did you guys think that? Well, first of all, I want to know. Be honest. Tell me true. Did (laughs) you guys realize how the egg had disappeared before it was spelt out? (laughs) No, No, I did. I I, it had to be spelt out to me. But then I thought, you know, maybe this is some kind of uh, metaphor for Tyrion riding a dragon someday. I like that <laughs> because of the because the uh, dwarf is the one who, who uh, gets it. Yeah, yeah. And where did he get it from? The cistern. Uh-huh. What was Tyrion in charge of? <laughs> yeah, truly. Could be, could be. <laughs> but no, yeah. When Dung smelled the and was trying to make small talk with that ugly dwarf and did not put any of that together, I was like, oh, that's a weird. Yeah, <laughs> that was a weird situation. <laughs> Uh, uh, I also just uh, thought, you know, George definitely likes to incorporate dwarfs in his stories. And, and we've got these here and then, uh, of course, Tyrion and then in the uh, princess and the queen. And in, in that, uh, those stories of the dra- Dance of the Dragon, um, both that one, I think, and the Rogue Prince um, and maybe even other places you have reference to that uh, mushroom who was a. Uh, court jester who you know wrote some scurrilous stories and so forth so uh he's got got quite a few yeah i think they're just like memorable in in their in their characteristics and and their place in the world and they can kind of go about and not be um suspected of having like interactions that or, or crimes and stuff like that and just kind of give them a little bit of invisibility yeah, well, the court jesters, I think, get that, you know, naturally because they're... Oh, they can get away with it, right, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just glad that it wasn't just, like, dropped in. He actually played a part and actually could lead to things down the road. Because perhaps Bloodraven had... Did you guys think Bloodraven had it, or did you think that he just kind of guessed what happened because he has spies? Do you think he worked for them? Because Doug kind of, uh, Dunk suggests at the end that, you know, why not a dwarf? Or why not, you know, one of the eyes, one of the thousand eyes in one that work for Bloodraven, why not it belong to a troop of comic dwarves? Did you think that they were actually working for him? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So you think Bloodraven has an egg now? Yes. Do you think he I mean, kept he, it? I think, oh, I think he had <laughs> one. I think he had one at that point in time. What he did with it, I have no idea. You know, yeah. I, I won't. I wouldn't. You know, like put money on the fact that he's cut it up there in the cave or anything like that. But uh, um, I think I think it's more likely that he may still have um, a dark sister, the sword. Mm. Uh, that, I think that's a possibility, but I, I, I doubt the egg. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think any of these eggs are are um, ones that turned out to be Danny's just by their description. But I was uh, amused by how uh, Dunk says, "Well, <laughs> if I win, then we both have an egg." And egg doesn't say anything, and he's like, uh, "You know, like asking why he won't comment." And he's like, "Well, you know, you told me to keep my mouth shut." If I, you know. <laughs> Well, he was more like agreeing. He was right. like, I really should learn to hold my tongues. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> very solemn. Oh, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a clever one. You're going to get the crap beat out of you, sir. <laughs> get him. Get him, sir. He's right over there. He's going to beat the crap out of you at this. Yeah. You're no good at this. You're no good at this jousting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. How Dunk keeps asking about, are they going to have a melee? You know, first he asks, he brings it up with Egg, who tells him, you know, not at a wedding. And then he brings it up again with the, uh, uh, at the dinner, and they, you know, kind of joke about that too. Mm-hmm. He's just really hoping for it, but nope. Egg was mm-hmm. always right. He's got to trust Egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly, have you got a, a point that you would like to bring up? Oh, sure. So, uh, continuing with our our ties or history repeating itself, or George running out of ideas. <laughs> I thought that the um, the Damon and Alan. Is that how we're going to pronounce that? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. His Lord Allen um, was uh, their relationship was reminiscent of uh, Rhaegar and our our favorite John Con. Hmm. Maybe then perhaps Renly and uh, uh, Loris. Yes, um, Renly maybe. and Loris. Yeah, I guess it, Rhaegar was more reminiscent because he's a. Tight, you know, Targaryen, but I guess, yeah, and it, he did seem like John Con kind of was like longing after him that maybe kind of appeared to be like maybe unreciprocated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think I believe so. Similar, yeah, I also like, yeah, the Renly Loras seemed a little bit more equal, even, and maybe even like a little manipulative on Loras's end, but. And a lot more overt. Oh, well, you say that, but I missed it the first time I read that. Really? Oh, I mean, yeah. things like, I want your sword? Come on. <laughs> You'll be surprised at the things men miss. <laughs> uh, well, now, you know, and and this Sir Alan, he wanted to be the, uh, you know, if uh, Damon had uh, gotten the throne, he wanted to be the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. And, right. uh you know, Dunk's the one, and and there is there's this one part where uh, oh, uh, Dunk says something about uh, you know, well, you know, if that happens, I'll become the king's guard, you know, commander of the king's guard. In a joke, he says, yeah, the, the um, thing about dragon's eggs hatching in king's oh, guard yeah. in the same way. Right, and we know right. that the dragon's eggs hatched, and we know that Dunk does eventually go there uh, at, right. at that point. So. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was funny from just from a like, oh, if you only knew, Dunk. <laughs> Aww, yeah, that part that part was kind of cute, and you know, we don't know Dunk doesn't have any prophetic skills that we've seen. So when he said to uh, uh, Fireball Glendel, or what was it, Glendon, Gelden? Uh, Glendon Ball. Glendon. Yeah. Yes, Glendon Ball. When he said to him, like, you know. Or we thought to him, you know, you have as much chance of becoming a white knight as I do. Ah. I wonder if that ever comes true. I bet you he does. I bet. Yeah, you know, I think instead of us looking at it as um, him having prophetic uh, ideas, I think it would be more of George giving us a little foreshadowing there. I wouldn't be surprised at all. For sure, yeah. <laughs> and then um, also just a slight reminiscent from a Song of Ice and Fire series was that um, the way that Butterwell's sons split up between the reds and the blacks was described um, reminded me of, uh, if you call the Swan family, and they had one right. son fighting for Renly and then Stannis, and then the other was um, Balin Swan, our favorite, who <laughs> ended up being uh, added to the White Knights for, uh, under Joffrey. 
So kind of hedging your bets. And I think there was even a mention in the Tyrion chapter of if he mm-hmm. had a third son, he would have been fighting for a Rob Stark. <laughs> right, right, right. And when Jamie uh, questions him when he has his first meeting uh, as uh, commander with these uh, different knights at the table, that's the one thing that he asks him about. He wants to know that uh, he's going to be able – he's like, you know, I'm not so oh, worried yeah. about your loyalty. I'm worried about your brother's loyalty and, you know, what would happen if your brother came in, and, and, you know, into a situation and he was on the other side. You know, what would you do? And he says, well – I wouldn't do what you did. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good answer. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Jamie, that's what I had forgotten. I was just looking in, because I remember that was in like a Clash of Kings when all those Tyrion and King's Landing chapters were. So then, yeah, I didn't even think to think of how Jamie would have asked him about it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I wanted to point out was that with this uh, Lord Gorman Peak of Starpike, and uh, he originally had the three castles, and two of them were stripped from him. Well, I was looking at that a little bit and uh, found out that uh, you know, the Peaks were the ones who had been opponents of the Manderleys. And so when the Manderleys had to leave uh, the river or re- leave the Reach and go north, the castle that they left, Dunstanbury, was given to the Peak family. Oh, so that's one of the one of the three uh-huh. plus the uh-huh. one that they already had. What was? Do you know the third of the three? Has it been put out anywhere? Oh, I can look at it real quick. I didn't write it down, but um, and the thing what what I did find out was uh, there has been no reference to say who these two castles have been given to since that time, but they were you know they were taken from them um, by uh, the throne. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll find that here and just take me a second. But, uh, okay. I did like the revelation that this was the man that killed Roger of Pennytree. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a little satisfying, but also maybe a little sad the way Dunk kind of took it at the end when he said he kind of owed him one, but in a really sad way. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. He took the time to close his eyes for him. Well, it's uh, White Grove. So they originally had Star. Pike, Dunstanbury, which was the Manderleys, and then Whitegrove. And Dunstanbury and Whitegrove, we don't know who they are. You know, if, if they've just been kept in the name of the, the king or whether they've actually been awarded to somebody. I know. Thanks for that info. Susan, what else you got on this? Oh, let's see. Um, well, you know, of course it was just, uh, you know, fun that uh, poor Dunk was given the task of taking the uh, the bride upstairs uh, in the bedding ceremony. So, you know, which, uh, you know, John the Fiddler recruits him for that. And, of course, it's not something Doug wants to do. But the fact that he does it is what allows him to go up and see the, the dragon's egg firsthand then. Oh, and, and the uh, privy in the chamber, don't forget. <laughs> right, right, right. And the dwarves that were... Yeah, yeah. Pull, pull them off of the... That we all thought was just an entertaining anecdote, but no, that was important. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was, all, it was all there for us to put together, and we just didn't until he hit oh. us over the head with it. Felt a fool. Right. <laughs> oh, uh, but yeah, one thing that I did note, too, was um, uh, this particular Blackfire Rebellion was the only one that wasn't supported by Bittersteel. You know, this right. was done with, without his involvement, and... Uh, as the hedge knights are sitting around the table talking about who's going to be there and so forth, they bring up um, Otho uh, Bracken, 
the brood of Bracken and, you know, mm -hmm. would he p potentially be here? And, you know, someone, uh, someone says, no, nah, he's not going to be here. So I think that, you know, kind of due to the fact that if, if, uh, Bittersteel had been involved in this, then I bet the Brackens would have been there. Mm. But since he wasn't, that's, you know, that's the reason there. I love the fact that it was, uh, the Blackwoods were part of the, had to be mentioned as part of the force that came for Blood Raven. Constantly. And you gotta have the Brackens <laughs> and the Blackwoods in there. Here's, here's a, 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 another thing. You guys were talking about this in the last podcast, and, and maybe I'm taking this a bit too far, uh, that the whole tinfoil hat thing goes on, but. Uh, yeah, I know. You're so shocked there, <laughs> Kel. Um, but just, I started thinking about this, and right at the beginning of the story, um, when Dunk, uh, is kind of exaggerating to Egg about his role about stealing the head, um, uh -huh. Do you connect that to any kind of exaggeration that he might do about being knighted? I mean, since we know that he's capable of exaggerating stories. Mm, that, that's possible. What, what that reminded me of was, you know, when they talked about all the things they did with this head until it was so deteriorated that they ran into a pot shop and threw it in the kettle. <laughs> and that made me think about the singer that uh, Tyrion sent Braun after. And the idea that that man was potentially ended up in a, a pot shop in a stew somewhere. I'll never eat a bowl of brown again. Right, I'll right. Never so, ever eat know, a bowl of brown so again. So this was just some more evidence that you really don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. <laughs> oh dear. I I think that that is kind of like a character trait of of Dunks that kind of is consistent. That makes sense. Yeah. He, although it's not consistent that he doesn't think of the correction to himself like maybe the you know this is kind of like a little exaggeration that doesn't really matter so he can kind of think of the actual events mm. without feeling too guilty whereas if he actually lets himself think about the fact that he wasn't knighted he'll feel way too guilty so he does kind of exaggerate and hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yeah like, yeah the the trade is similar, but the the way he, since we have his internal um, thoughts a little bit to some degree, that part's not super consistent. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, thinking back to that too, I've been uh, I've actually been reading the Hedge Knight with my uh, one daughter, and uh, just going over the part where um, Dunk was asked to to knight the uh, the Fossaway, and after you know he gets called away and so you know that's when uh the a lapping storm does it instead but it, it immediately talks about how dunk felt both a little bit of guilty and relieved so they're you know they're against a little bit more of that evidence mm. mm -hmm. uh one of the thing i also uh and this ties i guess to the main series in a way also is back to that story about ossifer plum uh, the princess Elena Targaryen, the one, and it was one of the three that uh, Baylor had, um, uh, you know, they were his sisters that he had put in the maiden vault. And then after he died, you know, they eventually, this, this is the one who actually did the most, you know, she actually went on to have, I think, three different husbands and so forth. But before she married Ossifer Plum, she was um, in love with this uh, Alan uh, Valerian who had got lost at sea. And she had a pair of twins um, by him. And those twins, which had the last name Waters, are related to that old man that Jamie has the interaction with who tells them 
that he has a drop of Targaryen blood in him, and he he has the name uh, Longwaters <laughs> because he had uh, you know the, I I guess eventually what happens is you know like a generation or two after the you know the one who's the bastard you can you can modify the name somewhat so that's where they you know they modified it to Longwaters and nice. so that's that guy <laughs> so we have How <laughs> Brown Ben Plum there over there with Daenerys who is related to this uh, Targaryen. And then we have the guy in the, uh, in the dungeon, working in the dungeon there, and we can trace both of them back. So we've, you know, we got a, got a trail there. So they are Targaryens. Huh. Master yeah, consistency, George. <laughs> uh, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, I don't care the gender of the horse. That kind of thing is way more complicated, I think, oh, and yeah. impressive, you know? <laughs> oh dear. Yes. Amazing, <laughs> and I mean, just reading this book and keeping track of all of the people that he was kept bringing up, and I'm like, is that a new name? And I like search my Google Doc. And I'm like, no, he mentioned that before. Like, he's just incredible. Granted, it's his job, but still, like, he's really, really good at it. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got for us, mm-hmm. Kelly? I was looking at some of the, of the the transition, like the dunk character arc that has happened over these couple books and it was really sweet to see him kind of have a couple of really loyal callbacks to steely pate like steely pate made me that armor or good strong helm and didn't that's why i didn't get my brains bashed in (laughs) i really appreciated that um and you know he had like this great bookend and i know there's going to be more duncan eggs and and that's great but like just for these three that are in this mystery or the um Night of the Seven Kingdoms trilogy that I'm hoping are kind of going to be thematically alike, and then the next two or three will be thematically alike. This character arc of him going from this really shy and insecure and awkward, like just got knighted maybe, <laughs> and um, being introduced and trying to get himself into attorney, and then now with this this great scene where he kind of calls out, you know, at the um, in the feast, the, the feast hall, and he mm. just yells out, "Your Grace!" And he calls out Damon, and he just kind of lays down the law and is so self-assured mm. about what is right and what is the moral thing to do. And I feel like that kind of gives him gives him like the words that he so wants to say, and he actually makes it happen. Like he makes them pull, he convinces Damon. He says the right words to convince Damon to let um let the 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 Hedgehog out of the um, the seller are being tortured. <laughs> yeah, let's go and ball out. You know, yeah. following that to uh, to a conclusion of of the net or the, of that development uh, to the next book, it may make it easier to see how he uh, easily wins over old Nan, right? Definitely, yeah. And if this one doesn't take very lo- doesn't take place very long after the Sworn Sword, right? It seems to be just uh, the the only time that has passed has kind of been their journey from the reach to this place. It seems right, like a couple months, if that right is implied. Um, so yeah, he's he's definitely kind of made this transition after all of these experiences into being a little bit more self assured and uh, you know, and at least like familiar with his abilities. Like he knows he's not good at jousting, but he knows he's good at melee, and he's actually kind of it's great to see a character like that become confident. He's like. Oh, if only there was a melee, I would be good at that. <laughs> you know, and and yeah. like even in these other areas where like just speaking up to, you know, uh, someone that these other people look to as as a king, you know, and that's 
someone way above him. And even when he thought he was just like a lordly hedge knight, he thought he was above him and didn't couldn't eat with him. But by the end, he's calling him out. Good call there. That's good points. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the uh, calling this guy out, uh, I didn't quite understand why everybody was calling Damon a pretender. Because he clearly was Targaryen, he was having dreams, he was, um, he had all of the physical traits, or he was clearly Blackfire, I guess I should say. Why would they call him a pretender, just because he, uh, because he wasn't endorsed by... I think, I think that that's a common terminology that's used whenever somebody is going for a throne, and they're not necessarily... Worthy of it? Uh, they don't necessarily have the right, yeah, the right to it. Okay. Um, so, um, for instance, like uh, Henry uh, the Eighth's father, Henry the Seventh, you know, kind of ended the War of Roses. You know, I'm sure. I thought, you know, I'm pretty sure he was referred to as a pretender. I've I've seen that historically in in a lot of ways. So okay, that that's why. Okay, I just you didn't get the I didn't like, get the reference. I haven't. I'm not a right, good enough student right. of uh, medieval mm-hmm. history and that kind of thing. I guess. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not either. I'm not either, so for sure, I, this would just be my take on it, is that he um, is the son of who they called the Pretender. Like, he was, um, Damon Blackfire was definitely called the Pretender oh, okay. mm-hmm. by Loyalists, mm-hmm. and since he's his son, and he's, like, kind of following in his footsteps, trying to incite rebellion and f- basically fill that role. And he, even worse, he, like, he doesn't have the sword, so <laughs> he's, like, right. a double Pretender. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just, it's historic to do that. Okay. That Doesn't makes mean more you're a sense. fake. I, I, yeah. I was worried that we were dealing with another Aegon kind of situation here, Fagon situation, and uh, oh. it didn't make any sense to me. I, I have myself, I guess, too much in the context of the of the main mm-hmm. series, uh, and so yeah. that's why I was being weird about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they could have even, yeah, you know, possibly. Um, uh, well, yeah, it, it just depends on your point of view, because like Viserys could say that. Um, Robert Baratheon was a pretender sitting mm. on his throne and Robert could maybe call Viserys a pretender, you know, that he didn't have a right to challenge for the throne anymore because he, he had you know, taken it. So you know, I think you can you know kind of look at it that way too. Okay. Mm. Um, I saw a mention of Lord and Lady Smallwood and they were crossing over on the ferry. And that just put me in mind of mm-hmm. the whole, um, you know, chapter where, where Arya went to, to Lady Smallwoods and Eggcorn Hall. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think their nephew ended up jousting once um, and lost. <laughs> I, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That was kind of cute. Um, I'm not sure if I'm misremembering who, now that I'm thinking about it, someone's nephew, I thought jousted and lost. <laughs> um, You're probably right. And how about this, um, uh, the snail knight? Yes, we haven't talked about Uther. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Uther. Go ahead. Oh, dang. Matt, start us off. You've been, you've been quiet. I want to hear you, what you got to say. What did you think of this guy? As a hype man, would, would well, you, would I, you I, I love that, you know, he's just like, uh, he, he's very good at, uh, at just playing the, playing a game, man. Um, if you had a manager, would you hire him? <laughs> it's all about. Like, I, I tell you what, I would want to be. I would want to be his agent for all of the and, and get my dig on on his takes. Is what I would want to be. Book him for a Fair. whole bunch of. Yeah. Uh, book him for a whole bunch of attorneys. You know, um, oh, very, very seemingly very adept at uh, at at 
uh, winning. His his thing was about feigning himself at the end. It didn't seem like he had bought off people to take the fall for him, right? It was the other guy that was buying people off to take the fall for him, right? Oh, yeah, that got convoluted. But yes, that's what was happening. The uh, John the Fiddler's people were paying off his competitors, whereas Uther was just like either lulling them into a sense of security, like, oh, I'm just a snail, like he did to Dunk. Right. <laughs> You know, or and then actually having skill to to make it seem like either a, a a tough victory or an easy victory, depending on how he wanted it to you know be perceived. Yeah, he's a businessman. Oh, he was good. Mm-hmm. There's a whole different concept of like how you can be a knight in the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> it was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Attorney knight, yeah, right. Not, not a uh, not a uh, a hedge knight or a landed knight, but attorney knight. I love that. I thought that was yeah. great. And I think that that does, you know, that does correlate, you know, historically that there were knights who made it their business to be turning knights. I mean, I don't know how deceptive they might be, but obviously, you know, whatever way that you can you know your opponents and know the situation to put yourself in, in, in an advantage was certainly going to help. Yeah. He didn't count on being outbid, though, on that last matchup, though. <laughs> yeah, that usually doesn't I mean you don't usually have Blackfire rebellions at these tourneys that you're right, going true. to. So right. right. Did not calculate that. But you know, otherwise his plan did kind of go pretty well and I couldn't fault him. Like he wasn't the best guy, but he his he was straight up with Dunk and he kind of told him that somebody was gunning for him and well, yeah. he did try to kill him, I guess. So that wasn't very nice. <laughs> yeah. The Al- Alan Cock- mm. Cockshaw, yeah, had uh because of his jealousy over uh John's fondness for Dunk yeah. had, uh, you know, taken, you know, asked him to take him out. Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of described that, you know, he he uh, didn't try as hard as he could. You know, if he'd been paid better, he would have really, you know, made sure that he did take him out. And I think, you know, he saw in Dunk, you know, when he saw how bad he was, he saw the potential for someone who could, uh, you know, help him run a scam. Yeah, it's like well, I can hit this guy anywhere, and and he can take falls, and we we can set up a great scam going on. Do you think he was set up to be like kind of a suspected bad guy involved here, or do you think he was just kind of meant to be a, a ver- add variety to the characters um, to mm. to dunk to dunk story? Did either of you suspect him? Um, well, I mean, I think he was added to to uh, provide this uh, you know additional dimension that you know there are knights who are are doing this type of thing in in the world as well you know so it just it gives us another you know like you were saying it gives us a attorney knight viewpoint kind of attorney sellsword in a way yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. yeah it kind of showed another variety of dishonor dishonorability i guess that dunk refused to partake in and just kind of as a I don't know, a foil to Dunk, you had this this character, this option that if he wanted to, he could make money doing this. But you can tell why he ends up where he does at the end and why, you know, he 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 becomes this person that we read we read about, why he is the hero and the character that we have all these books about. Is it a little bit too fantasy tropic, the way Dunk refuses to have, uh, I mean, we've talked about the fact that he may not be a knight, but re- really that seems to be the only thing that I can really think of about Dunk that I'm kind of like, well, that's iffy. You know, everything, right, right everything here, else yeah. about Dunk seems to be pretty on the straight and narrow. Um, and I don't know if that's supposed to comment on his, 
naivete or 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 if it's supposed to comment on his uh you know his honorability it just seems a little bit um a lot more fantasy tropic than than other characters in the main story to me he does seem a little white knighty not to you know yeah <laughs> but doesn't he him. doesn't he seem like i mean he's kind of he he is the Male, uh, Brienne at a, you know, earlier stage, obviously, you know, even with their relation. I think I had mentioned this last time. I, to me, what I see is that George likes to do this, um, thing where he's showing the qualities of a true knight in these people who aren't true knights. And you have it with Dunk yeah. and you have it with Brienne. You have it to some degree with the Hound. Um, you know, there are people who are protecting the, uh, and doing things that true knights are supposed to do. And they're not really knights. Yeah, we kind of get their experience as like they're not um, the heroes of the stories, they're, even though this, he is the hero of our story. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're not the heroes of these stories where they're um, super charming or a very, um, in, I don't know, like, <laughs> they have good words. They can speak well, unlike myself. <laughs> they can, you know, they can do, they, they are not Sansa's heroes that she, you know, has to have right. all the time. And, and it's kind of seems a little self-evident to us because we are in his head and he is constantly honorable. <laughs> yeah. Like rarely even tempted is he. So it's, it does seem a little easy for us to kind of say, wow, he is two dimensional. Well, yeah. yeah. And evidently the apple doesn't far from fall far from the tree, right? Because if Brienne is the same way, yes. um, yeah, maybe that's right. just supposed to be was supposed to be another parallel kind of clue to to build in about the whole, um, you know, shield at uh, at Tarth and all of that. Right, and maybe just seeing how it doesn't always come easy, and sometimes it doesn't always work out. And they are hot and hungry, and they are, you know, eating beef tougher than their boots. You know, <laughs> so it does kind of show how life can be and. Mm-hmm. Doesn't always work out as like you know, it's not all roses, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful experience for Aegon, you know, uh, for True. for his development to become the uh, the king who is more like a peasant than a king. You know, he's had these experiences, and uh, so he, he's a wonderful guide for him on this uh, this journey. Well, you just left the perfect opening for me to say to our buddy Bubba from the Joffrey of podcast: See if Joffrey had just <laughs> ridden around with Brienne for a little while. Oh, secret chapters. Oh, yeah. Maybe there are. Maybe there is a POV chapter. Maybe there is a secret Joffrey POV chapter. Uh, I love the Picel chapter. That was great. There are a couple more things with Uther that I, uh, were, was kind of interesting um, that I just have little, little teeny tiny notes on is that um, <laughs> he does seem to call out uh, Glendon for not being the son of Fireball. And he goes into like the whole history as to why and his, his mom, Jenny, was not the most demure of women. So mm-hmm. it's possible that anyone was his father. Uh, but he does call out, um, he does not even have red hair, which I thought was completely <laughs> out of context for this Song of Ice and Fire genetics that we get, because why are all the people of King's Landing so blind that Cersei's three kids are not Robert's three kids? If this guy can see, like, he's not his son, his hair doesn't match, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, it, it does seem a, a little strange. Although, you know, it, the the evidence is in the book. Maybe uh maybe this book that Ned reads was written because of this. 
aha, <laughs> there must be a way that we can track genetics. Oh, let's just write down their hair Black color. of hair. Black of hair. <laughs> and go around and make sure nobody's dyed their hair. So you have to wash their hair and then write it down. Because <laughs> apparently you can just wash dye out because that's what Damon does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, I, I was wondering how the how the the, uh, the whole bleaching process or, or the washing of the dye out works. But let me just tell you, I've got bleach blonde hair. It does not just wash off, and you've got bleach blonde hair. It stains. <laughs> like things like this do not just wash out, <laughs> unless Damon has blood magic. <laughs> Mm. And uh, but but we also have a few examples too of the the Targaryens who had married into the Dornish family and that they don't all look you know Targaryenish either. So um, oh, sure, but people just complain about it. They never say he's not of their you know right you know, not of their loins because they don't have the same hair color. I just thought yeah. that was that just stuck out to me. It was very yeah yeah yeah. And I and I uh, thought that that was interesting that. Uh, that ball has to, you know, go through all of this. Mm. And obviously he's got a chip on the shoulder about it and everything. But I think one of the things that's really telling is he obviously has some, some natural talent or he wouldn't have, you know, been able to do what he did. And um, so to me, that would be the most revealing thing because even though he has been obviously groomed and trained for this as much as his mother and sister could afford and help him to do, he still hasn't, you know, had that much of an advantage to be able to come in and and uh, do, you know, as well as he did in this joust. Yeah, with only like the the teachings of a like an old squire who mm-hmm. was being paid in what rum rum and brothel services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was, uh, yeah, he actually. That's a good point. Like maybe genetically, that is kind of an indicator, and and I think that is kind of what I liked about both him and Uther is that they were. Kind of like Jamie in that, like they maybe weren't the most lovable characters, but they could actually back up their action, their words with their actions, and mm-hmm. and you kind of have to respect them even if you don't like them. Yeah. But in the end, I think I kind of liked um, yeah. Glendale because he was so he was so spiky, but then he kind of came around, and you know, I guess because Dunk comes around, so do we. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and how about um, how about Darren's uh, dragon dreams? You know, I think uh, here is another example that we had. You know, we had the one in the Hedge Knight where uh, uh, Egg's brother, uh, Damon, has the dream. And then here's another one where I think uh, we're getting a fair amount of evidence that uh, when these Targaryens have these dreams that a lot of time, I mean, they don't necessarily come out the way the person thinks they might, (laughs) obviously, you know, when – it, it, it seems that Egg is the dragon that uh, was hatched yeah. here, and that uh, you know uh, Baylor Breakspear was the dragon that died in the first one. But it does point to the fact that there seems to be some significance to these dreams that they're not just uh, nothing. You know that when these guys have them, and they also he he talked about it the same way that Damon kind of did, almost as if he he can tell that these are different dreams. It's not just like a normal dream dream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that it makes them have a little bit more plus, uh, you know, you put a little bit more belief in them, but at the same time, like when they can be twisted from like a dragon will hatch is what you saw, and it came out to be egg being pulled a, out being his ring. Out, yeah. Uh, that was the- well, but you know, water coming over the walls of Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, there, there's so many, there's so many things that about the dreams that are metaphoric and open to interpretation that I, I guess 
for me, um, it just makes me think, uh, how are they getting these dreams? I mean, it's not just magic coming through yes. their lines, right? I mean, is this, is somebody using glass candles even here? Uh, I'm not a huge subscriber to the, all the dreams are caused by glass candle theory. I've, <laughs> I've heard a lot about that. I mean, I, I know, I'm sure that, you know, with, uh, in Daenerys's situation with Quaith, and I'm sure that, uh, uh, Marlon, the mage, uh, is probably doing some things with his glass candle, but I don't think it's like, you know, every, every time somebody has a dream, that's where it's coming from. Okay, yeah. I'm folding up my tinfoil hat. I'm putting it away. <laughs> uh, uh, go ahead, Cal. I know what you want to say. Go ahead. <laughs> what, you want to talk about my spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> it ended, I felt so deflated because by the end, I was I made a spreadsheet of all these people that showed up, who was in the red, who was in the black, and who was neutral. And by the end, I mean, Sir Alan, or who who spelt it out? Was it Sir Sir Alan? Just spelt out that everyone who was invited had either fought for the blacks or had a grievance with. Them. <laughs> so it was like if they're in the red, it's they still have a grievance. So it kind of ended up being pointless, but <laughs> yeah, um, it exists there. And you know, I ended I used a lot of uh, the the previous Blackfire Rebellion lists to uh, to kind of make those connections. It was gotcha. it was fun, but <laughs> fun, but uh, in the end, uh, uh, pointless. You, yeah, you. Just- <laughs> You, you was you just kind of like uh, at that point you were just like oh shucks. <laughs> yeah, it's like well I guess I can fill in all the ones I had question marks at. <laughs> yeah, now I know. Oh, very good. What else we got, guys? Well, one thing I liked when uh, they were talking at dinner about the prizes, you know, besides the egg that uh, that the loser of the last till would get thirty gold dragons and then ten gold dragons for the knights that were um, defeated in the the last round. And I like this, uh, what uh, Dunk is thinking here. He says, uh, 10 dragons is not so bad. 10 dragons would buy a palfrey, so Dunk would not need to ride thunder save in battle. 10 dragons would buy a suit of plate for egg and a proper knight's pavilion sung with Dunk's tree and falling star. 10 dragons would mean roast goose and ham and pigeon pie. <laughs> I just liked it. That just uh, tickled me that uh, you know he's thinking about all these things he could do if he... He's able to win here. Well, I love oh, how the last so one sure. is food. Yeah. 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 That one's in italics. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was, I mean, at that point, you're just thinking, oh, what do I want right now? That's an instant gratification, what you do with your winnings. <laughs> mm-hmm. The others are, are maybe thinking with a bigger picture. But then, yeah, he just got down and dirty. He was like, never mind. I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> um. Uh, this, oh, I did, it's like at the top of my notes, but this is just one of the other, um, tiebacks there. Oh man, it just really felt like George was running out of ideas. But the scene where, um, Dunk went out for some <clears throat> fresh air and he overheard the two mysterious voices right. talking and, oh, our, our naive hero doesn't understand what all this conspiring is about and doesn't even recognize the voices. It was just very, <laughs> Aria. <laughs> scene yeah it felt very illyrio varies yes it did <laughs> and i had to go back and reread it and i was like wow it was obvious there that the um the person that they're talking about is having a dream and well then we we like very soon after hear about um you know sir john's dream and mm-hmm. john the fiddler was like oh yeah okay he's the dragon and 
I don't know. It, it's so obscure when you read it and you don't know what's going to happen next, but it's so obvious <laughs> upon reread. Yes, it's very obvious upon a reread, I suppose and so. To to go into that that quote a little bit more, I don't know how much you guys uh, were uh, interested in some of the minutia, Matt. No. Oh sure, go ahead. <laughs> so it was just they were talking about Bittersteel, and this was actually discussing the fact that um, he doesn't have the sword, um, meaning Damon, and that this is not. They don't have bitter steel, so why are we doing this? This is a beggar's feast, they call it, like trying to incite a rebellion based on how, I don't know, I guess like momentous or how um, close they came with their last rebellion. And here you have this young kid who sure is charming and perhaps very skilled, but he's no you know, he's not his father. He's young and he doesn't even have the sword. So these are some of the things that, that kind of like on a reread I was breaking down like, oh, so Bittersteel doesn't even either doesn't know or doesn't approve that they're doing this. And that's this is kind of where we talked about earlier. Bittersteel's uninvolvement in this um, became clear to me. And and why do you think that is? Do you have an opinion about about that, I think that his absence kind of spoke for itself about his opinion of Damon the Younger. I mean, he's right. Yeah, so I mean, he's not Bittersteel's son, so maybe there's some like competition there. Because mm-hmm. I think after this one, doesn't Bitter- Bittersteel put the crown on his son's head? No, he That's goes the to the next, uh, the next. Oh, son is it Damon? Mm-hmm. Oh, it is still uh, Damon's children. Oh no. Who's not Damon? What's their sorry? What was Damon's dad's name? Darren. Darren's son. Am I remembering this? No. So many players. No. Uh, no uh, Damon is the son of Aegon the Unworthy. Oh, they're both they're all- Damon, right? His father's name is Damon, and his name is Damon. Yeah. So H- Hagen. Oh, oh, okay. The, the is- next Damon. Okay. Well, this Damon here that, <laughs> that's in this story. That's what you're talking about. I know. So Dave right. Hagen is the next one that he they okay. attempt to crowd, and okay. that's Damon's brother and also Damon's son. Figure that right. one. Because <laughs> wow. his first two sons, the Aegon and Aemon, were killed in the red grass field. Right, and how confusing is that? Because we have Aegon <laughs> brother Aemon. Like, why? Why do this, George? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, because he's is there. He is trying to kind of of uh, copy history. There. I mean, how many? Henry's and John's and, uh, you know, actually there's only a couple of John's, but I mean, you know, how many of these Kings that all have the same name when you go to these, you know, to For England sure. and France and stuff like that, you know, uh, what else have we got guys? Well, I have one thing I'd like to mention, and this is just due to some recent reading that I was doing. Um, they did, uh, sing the bear and the maiden fair here in the, uh, uh, in the story and that being such, such a prevalent song in Westeros, I just wanted to suggest to people that people who might be interested in learning a little bit about the use of bears in the story might want to check out a website called the mythological weave of ice and fire. And there's a whole section there that someone has done uh, where they, um, there's a big post on at Westeros.org on this too, but then she went ahead uh goes by sweet ice and fire sunray um anyways uh, she did this very researched um uh, bears in uh our culture ancient culture 
and the mythology behind them and then uh, associates that with some of the ways that George has used it both for the Mormons and the Bear and the Maiden Fair and so forth. And it's really interesting. So um, I just wanted to suggest that people might want to check it out. You sent me that link in email. I did. All right, I cool. did. Yeah. She's actually got a lot of other stuff there too, where she's kind of like, uh, you know, that, that big one that you had, Matt, where they were associating it with all the Norse myth- mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, this one uh, is looking at Greek mythology. Interesting. And, uh, you know, associating Leanna with uh, Presperon. Pres- goes underground, you know, for a certain number of months a year and so forth. Anyways, it's all there. I won't take a lot of time for, uh, you know, to, to dive into that. That's not what we're here for. But just wanted to tell people <laughs> that it's another resource out there. And uh, the bear and the maiden fair and the interpretation she comes up with is really interesting. Oh, I love that. Yeah. If like something like just hearing, you know, that the bear and the maiden fair made you think of this whole, right. uh, you know, like, I don't know what you call this essay that somebody did. Uh-huh. Uh, what was uh, yeah. the other song in the story? I, there was another song. I can't remember now, though. Yeah, it was uh, the uh, just scrolled past it. Uh, Two hearts that beat as one. OK. Ah. Alright, two hearts that beat is one. <laughs> oh, Susan, you're such a nerd. I love it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just love amazing it. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I am not, I am not the one who is going to be able to come up with these great ideas and so forth, but I'm, I'm good at reading this stuff and assimilating it and then sharing it. You know, that, that's kind of, that, that's what I consider to be my niche. And, uh, this, this, yeah, Agreed. this is a really cool one that, uh, thank you. Really appreciate. Um, and uh, just uh, when you're talking about two hearts would be as one, thinking back to the, you know this poor girl in the story who's getting married to this Butterwell, yeah. and uh, <laughs> and who you know Walter Frey having uh, uh, ratted on her and <laughs> caused the poor thing to be married to this old man. I, know, I mean, not that that's unusual love. in this society, but still. Well, she <laughs> was messing around with the kitchen help. You can't do that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That was stupid. Yeah. That was for true love. No, maybe it was <laughs> for true not. love. <laughs> it was young love. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, she kind of did did end up screwing herself in the end there. But true, truly. Yeah. Well, it won't be so bad. Well, actually, at the end of it, it is pretty bad because does he have a house anymore? He doesn't have like a castle anymore. They're kind of beggars no. now. Yeah. yeah, I mean, here he lost both of his sons. He had them fight on either side, and they both died on the red grass field. And then after this mess, he loses his his uh, castle. Yeah, and I wonder if that's like George's like ability to fit this book in without having to rewrite anything that he's written before or explain anything he's explained before. Because he did say that like the castle was newly raised within the past forty years, and then at the end of it, <laughs> Bloodraven is promising to take the castle down stone by stone. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, this is the only time that this castle appears in the series because reasons. All right. Yeah. Well, we do we do get the connection though between Aegon the Unworthy and the reason oh, that sure. this guy had the dragon egg in the first place. So, and I, and I do think that's referenced in other places. So, <laughs> yeah, very good. What else we got, guys? Anything? Lots. I don't know. <laughs> uh, those are all the things that made me smile. Mm. Yeah, I think I'm about out of my list too. Wow. Uh, okay, well, well I, lady I, down. I, I have thoughts uh, in feedback for us. 
feedback. Uh, this is an email from our friend Pat, who's at Patman23 on Twitter. Uh, he says, Dear Matt and the Red Widows, whom I dare not exclude, uh, just finished listening to the discussion of the Sworn Sword, the second Dunk and Egg novella. It was great as always, and I enjoyed hearing Susan Kelly and Stephanie's takes on the novella. I just finished reading The Mystery Night to finish off A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, and I'm interested in going back and listening to the discussion on The Hedge Night. And once you are all cover The Mystery Night, I'll go back and reread all of the Duncan Egg stories. I have a few thoughts or reactions I'd like to contribute post-discussion of The Sworn Sword. First, the weather. There was some discussion about the weather in The Sworn Sword, with some observations on the climate of Westeros in general. I know that there have been scholarly works trying to justify the variable seasons or some kind of crazy axial tilt or weird orbit of Planetos, but I've always liked the assertion that what the people of Westeros call winter is a mini-ice age caused by magic, because it shows up unnaturally fast, doesn't last long, and ends unnaturally fast. Fast being relative to the more normal cycles of ice ages on Earth, which happen in geological time. This isn't a theory I fully came up with. It's something I read somewhere, but I don't remember where. So winter would be the period of ice age-like activity. Summer would then be when normal weather is in effect, and spring and autumn are the transitional periods between those states. I think during all four of those big macro seasonal events, there are more regular seasonal changes. In A Game of Thrones, Ned and Robert both remark on the occasional summer snow in the north, and there's references to false springs, which I assume are warm periods during the winter. Because the occurrences of the many ice ages are so frequent, this larger cycle of weather just dominates the perspective of the people of Westeros in regards to what a season is. My point is, I think the drought happening in Westeros during the period of a sworn sword is not a typical occurrence. Summer in general throughout A Song of Ice and Fire seems to be a time of plenty, and there doesn't seem to be the equivalent dreaded attached to winter is coming in the Reach. I don't know if summer is coming is, is anyone's words. I have a lot more thoughts on the axial tilt of Planetos, which I think is probably not as much as Earth's, but I'll pass on rambling about that for now. Taking Dunk at his word. The conversation around Dunk possibly never having been knighted by Sir Arlen of Pennytree was eye-opening to me. I don't think I realized that Dunk was impersonating being a knight, and I guess I took Dunk at his word when he talked to others about the brief knighting ceremony he described, and the fact that any knight can make a knight. I found the whole idea of Dunk's point of view being unreliable somewhat notable, because of another assumption that some people have made about Duncan when reading the stories. My dad gave me A Night of Seven Kingdoms as a Christmas gift, and he took the liberty of reading it first. He told me that Sir Duncan was very stupid. I think my dad formed the opinion entirely from believing the things Dunk would say about himself, Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle wall. In my opinion, Duncan was not stupid. He was uneducated, and he would make mistakes. But in general, I thought he was very on the ball, and, if not particularly clever, not a blundering oath. I'm curious now how other people view Sir Duncan if he's considered a big dummy or not. Well, let's stop right there. There's more to the email, but 
I, I don't think I ever got the impression that Duncan was was stupid. I I do think that he's somewhat naive about certain things, um, but I don't think I don't really think he's he's um, not smart. He he's obviously illiterate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not smart. Um, Kelly, what do you think about Sir Duncan? Is he is he Sir Dunson? Um, <laughs> No, no. Yeah, I think like, like um, Pat said, Patman said that the the uh, he's uneducated, which is not a uh, does not is not a judgment on capacity for intelligence. Right. You know, so there, there's just not ex- experience or exposure. So he's capable of um, learning as we've seen him do, but he's also, um, I think, just inherently has good judgment. So I feel like there's a lot of um, signs for high capacity for intelligence in that way. Right on. So how about you, Susan? What do you think? I totally agree. Both, you know, the, the, the issues are that he is, he's not educated and he's naive, uh, that he hasn't been, you know, exposed necessarily to a lot of things. But, you know, now, now he is, you know, becoming wiser as he gets older. And, you know, here at the end of this particular story, he was able to deduce that, uh, yeah, it was probably the dwarf that, you know, went, you know, that, uh, climbed through the privy shaft when, um, Blood Raven tells him that, uh, well, you know, a child could do that. So, I mean, yeah, he's able to put things together. Very good. Very good. And, and you can kind of actually look back, and I'd be interested to do this. So, Petman, when you go back and do this, um, try looking for all the times that Dunk does refer to himself as Dunk the Lunk, and he's like down on himself, and like review those times and see if like it changes. Like if he's, I feel like in the beginning, like he might be, he, he might make some kind of um, ignorant based mistakes but then later on like i know in this book for sure he was saying dunk the lunk and like i'm about to go stand up for somebody who's innocent and yell at a pretender and you know do the just thing and not the looking out for number one thing you know like does is there a transition in his character from those things that he does call out in himself as being a dumb decision which really just aren't dumb anymore they're just um not what somebody who's has some like (laughs) self-preservation priorities would do you know absolutely uh pat finishes up with this egg the squire although i like the discussion comparing egg to aria and to young griff i think there is a third squire that should be considered as a point of comparison the wonderful podrick Payne. egg Mm -hmm. is not similar in temperament or personality to podrick but one of their notable similarities was their encyclopedic grasp of heraldry because uh-huh. Egg was not expecting to ever sit on the throne, I kind of associate Egg more with Podrick, who was not ambitious and just happy to serve a shining example of knighthood. Uh, the Sir Duncan slash Lady Brienne connection is also a plus for me. I'm looking forward to the next brand analysis and to hearing your discussion on the Mystery Night. Uh, I liked uh, the comparison to Sir uh to Podrick just because of the the knowledge of heraldry um on the other hand uh you'd have to think that um Podrick was probably made to do this i almost feel like Aegon has more of an interest to it he's a prince he doesn't really have to know anything does he i mean he's been told he has got he's going to school probably at a younger age and and getting better school than a Podrick but it just feels like uh, you know Podrick is a guy who has to make himself, whereas Egg is a guy who doesn't really have to um, and has taken this more of as an interest um, than as a, a need. Yeah, I think 
I think he is being encouraged and supported by his dad because I would say that there's, you know, ever Mike just thinking of it now is that since Aegon the Fourth, they're kind of like maybe it would be for the best if we had a king who, or even like if our royalty, because I guess maybe even Egg was not considered to be possible for king. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I think uh, I think those are are good points as well. And then the the idea, what I really like is the fact that we have. Uh, like you say, Aegon is choosing to spend time with this uh, uh, because he really likes uh, Dunk. You know, he came to be really fond of him through the the whole instance of is of what went on with the Hedge Knight. But uh, you know, he's putting himself in really rough conditions that he did, wouldn't have to to do at all. You know, so I think that's extremely commendable. Very good. Any comments on the weather of Westeros and Planetos uh, that he had initially? Oh, I, I dug that. I was watching. <laughs> we didn't have internet for like a week and a half. It was pretty pretty rough, but I did have all of these like old science documentaries saved that I just hadn't watched because <laughs> why watch that? I've got Netflix. Well, I didn't have that, so we watched all of these like old like 2005 like planet documentaries that are pretty cute now. But um, some of them, I learned some things, you guys. So the planet Venus rotates backwards, which I would think would be fascinating. So all the other planets in the solar system, like in our solar system, rotate the same way, except Venus. Rotates back backwards, and also um, Uranus is like on us on like a forty-five degree angle. So I wonder what that does to its like its you know its magnetic north its poles are not mm-hmm. like ours, which are pretty vertical, and unlike ours, they are on forty-five degree angle. So there's like precedent a little bit for some of this stuff. And there's if you look in like orbits of like other galaxies, they have these really wonky orbits that aren't all on a disc like ours. So there's some interesting. Like, of course, like my nerd brain is like sciencey watching this, but in the back of my brain, I'm going Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, it's, it's interesting if you look up to like this, this whole like debate has really interesting um, scientific uh, minds working on it who are have all kinds of nerdy interests that span both astrophysics and <laughs> yeah. the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Su- Susan has, because uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm, very bad about getting to things uh too quickly but uh has lucifer lightbringer brought up anything about the the axle shifts or anything in any of his presentations no um i don't think so no and that's not really about so much about the planet he a lot of his stuff is more geared around the idea that um you know coming from that one story that is in the first book where there were two moons Mm -hmm. you know and the one moon um, was uh, that the the comet that came by, you know, he, he hit the first moon, and that that was uh, you know, that there was magic involved in this is all back in the the uh, the dawn age, you know. So to what degree some that magic was influencing this, I I'm not sure, but right. that you know the long night was caused by this huge meteor shower from the comet hitting this. Uh, uh, the second moon that okay. no longer exists. And what's real interesting about that is when you go back to ancient uh, mythology and and looking at the way that people would describe these things in ancient days, that that uh, meteors are you know called dragons, and there's just so much similarity to all of it. It's it's really interesting. But it, he has I don't think he's gone into anything about the uh, the planet itself. It's much more about the moons and the comet. Okay. All right. So forth. I just was interested. I thought he might uh, dive into that too. So, uh, <laughs> if you happen to be listening, we, uh, do 
at some point. <laughs> you do it. You do it, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, that's way too, the, those guys like history of Westeros and, and that guy, they put in way too much time with their research and everything. I just like having other people on who have done the research and asking them questions. <laughs> right. I'm kind of, kind of lazy that way. Oh, Matt. <laughs> Well, I volunteer if if I'm waiting. <laughs> a 90-page spreadsheet attachment with the podcast is on your way, folks, when it comes to <laughs> Yeah, you'd love this stuff too, Kelly. If you haven't been listening to his podcast, I think you'd love it. All right. I'm going to have to get that from you. Sounds, sounds okay. up my alley. <laughs> right on. Um, Send you some information. Well, thanks, guys, so much for, for joining me. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on once again. It's great to uh, get schooled on A Song of Ice and Fire yet again. Uh, I feel like uh, coming off of this podcast, like I've been struck in the head by a lance of, of knowledge. And, brown dragon. Yeah. I'm, and uh, I, I, feel, uh, I feel very enlightened. It's always a pleasure. Kelly, if people want to talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire in between your, your uh you're creating of many spreadsheets. How can they do that? <laughs> oh, please do. Um, I'm Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. And if I, you know, so that also goes for any sciencey uh, nerds out there too. I'm, I'm all about that. <laughs> please, please uh, reach out and uh, just solidarity ladies, gentlemen. I'm all down with, I'm down with both. I'm down with everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to to doing uh, the next one. I know this is kind of like the end of this little this little uh, section. So, thank you for having me, Matt. And thanks again for making the time to be with us. I know you're a very busy girl, so I appreciate it very much. Ooh. Yeah, uh, Burning Man next week. Just letting you know. Right on. <laughs> Starting out last semester. Get in there. Get it done. Wow. Get her done. Yep. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Susan, thanks again so much once again for your expertise and and your vast uh, wide on-the-spot knowledge of, of A Song of Ice and Fire. It's always very much appreciated, and you're always turning us on to really good stuff to, to use to supplement our, our time period while we're waiting for the next book or waiting for the next season of the television show. How can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire? Well, thank you very much, Nat. Matt. You're so kind there, and um, I just, uh, I'm going to do a little Bubba plug here. I, uh, I am on Twitter at uh, Black Eyed Lily. And I'm trying to hit 300 followers. I'm getting awful close. So anybody out there that isn't following me that would uh, like to to sign up, I uh, pretty much, uh, I'd say probably 75 to uh, 90% of my uh, my tweets are sending people information about Song of Ice and Fire stuff. And the rest of it, uh, it may be some other uh, fandoms that I'm, that I'm fond of, but... Uh, I'd love to get a few more followers so I can hit that 300 mark. Oh, momentous. Congratulations. Yeah. Good <laughs> luck. Good luck. Uh, do it. Make it happen, folks. I mean, I, yeah. Bubba at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. <laughs> I think he's got well over 500, maybe almost 600 mm-hmm. now. So uh, if, if he, him, the guy who never shows up anymore can have that many <laughs> followers. Um, mm-hmm. No, we love you, Bubba. Uh, then you, Susan should have at least twice that many. I I need 15, like 15 more people. I'll start using the hashtag Susan to 1000. (sighs) Oh, ambitious. Yeah. (laughs) And and talking about Bubba, I mean, that podcast that they came out with, the Joffrey podcast for Monday, uh, was was a classic. That was wonderful. If people haven't heard that yet, they should definitely tune in. And you can find me on Twitter at (laughs) WinterfellPod. See you later. (laughs) 
Well, and I was sitting there thinking that maybe those stumps were cut down. That the, the the stumps were what helped make uh, the uh, the the white wall castle. There were there were weirwood rafters in the in the roof. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> that's what I said. Oh, I didn't hear you say that. Oh, oh. <laughs> you were. I was often. thinking that when I, when I heard that I was <laughs> kings that all have the same name when you go to these, you know, to. England sure. and France and stuff like that, you know. Well, and isn't it uh, a fairly vain thing to to name a son? You know, keep a, a line of. I, I I one of my good friends, a sax player, is Dinner mm-hmm. the Third. You know, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Trip? Do you call him Trip? No, I never call him Trip. I never call him Trip. I call him Jerk. Oh, let's see. Um have a lot here take a turn my pages here <laughs> I don't have it all on the computer I've been writing oh, down I like, notes, so. I like the sound yeah. effects the, the sound of actual is. actual pages oh, turning paper, yes. paper moving yes. okay you've been listening to podcast Winterfell find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840.